Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin, here as always with my good friend, Miguel. You know, I miss you guys. It's getting lonely over here. Yeah. Yeah, actually, when I say I'm with him, we are uh, on little boxes on a screen. Also on a little box on a screen is Dr. Ty Newell. He's a professional engineer. He's a professor emeritus. Um, I actually have... I'm really excited about talking with him. I'm kind of a little nervous because it's like, uh, it's, let's see, it's like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that computer deep thought, you know, the supernatural computer program to calculate the answer to the ultimate question. I feel like I'm getting to talk to uh, that computer a little bit. No pressure, Ty, just be brilliant. Yeah, well, don't worry. I can be pretty shallow too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, you're, I was joking with you earlier that your the very short bio on your website is just says Professor Emeritus. <laughs> yeah. Could you elaborate a little? Tell us a little about you know, who you are and where you come from. Yeah, it, well, as you alluded to, I'm old as dirt. And uh, <laughs> so I, I graduated in the early 70s uh, with a degree in mechanical engineering and Worked for a chemical company for a couple of years and found out I actually liked engineering, but I'd always been wired up to work toward sustainable living, living on our daily allowance of solar energy. So I went back to grad school and uh, got my uh, graduate degrees and then became a professor in 1980 at University of Illinois, which has been my home since that time. And I retired in 2007. Uh, I loved every minute at the university, and I still do things on campus, but my son and I, with our company, uh, I found it as a good time to work with him to try to build. He, for whatever reason, is like-minded and the critical need to live sustainably, and so we've been focused on how do you live in a healthy, comfortable manner in a sustainable manner. Fantastic, and that is, in fact, one of the main points of today's episode y'all that are listening is we're going to be talking about mechanical systems for indoor air quality and uh, Ty and his son Ben have a great deal of experience um, and deep thought thinking about such things. Deep thought was the name of that computer but you mentioned solar (laughs) Ty and uh, we were speaking a couple days ago and it turns out you know one of my kind of heroes this guy Jigger Shaw. Oh yeah yeah Jigger was uh, uh, an undergrad student at the University of Illinois, and back in the 90s when it was a pretty lonely time to be working in solar energy, um, uh, when a student group would invite me to give a talk on solar, and there might be two or three people there, but I always maintained if it's the right one, two, or three people, it doesn't matter how many, and Jigger was one of those folks, and we had many discussions back then, and uh, and so, uh, I, yeah, it, it's a friendship I value a lot as well as just very thoughtful person and wired up the right way. Just a wonderful human being. Yeah. Yeah. And he's on the energy gang podcast, which if any of you listeners from to our podcast are not yet listening to the energy gang, I highly recommend it. Um, just a fantastic group. 
You also were uh, on some solar decathlon programs, is that right? Yes. Uh, in the third solar decathlon, which I was the advisor for the mechanical side, and uh, in 2007, so 2005, 2007, and just a wonderful experience. Uh, 200 to 250 students of all flavors from across campus and uh, a wonderful faculty uh, advising group, uh, Pat Chapman over in electrical engineering, and uh, Mike McCulley, my uh, partner from architecture, who built one of the very first super insulated homes in the country in the mid-70s. Yeah, in well, fact, his name's kind of famous in the Passive House community because of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these locale houses, they still exist in the community here, and uh, and it, it was a foundational work for, for that. So, uh, yeah, we had a, just a wonderful core, and we did okay in the decathlon. It was our first experience. And then our successors, that wore me out enough that I retired, but our successors then uh, came in second and did uh, an excellent job in the 2009 decathlon. All right. And I, if I remember right, you uh, you had a rethinking occurring during this time about whether solar thermal, which was really an early interest of yours, solar thermal, um, was giving way to photovoltaic powering a heat pump to generate hot water. Could you talk about that yeah. just briefly? Like, what's your thinking? Yeah, about? I mean, you know, my whole background, my master's and PhD were all in solar thermal from computational and experimental work. Uh, I probably crawled around more acres of solar thermal panels than about anybody. And um, I just always thought it would be a mix of solar thermal for the heating side of things and maybe the cooling. And then photovoltaics, just because of the expense and the lack of efficiency at that time that, you know, you try to use it just for those few things that had to have electricity. But Jigger was really the one who opened my eyes in the 90s that, hey, here's the trajectory this is on. Uh, everything's going to be photovoltaic. And so the 2007 decathlon was an opportunity for me to rethink it with this engineering student group. And I said, you know, let's do the whole house all electric. We're going to design and build a heat pump water heater. They weren't on the market really in 2005, so we did that. Uh, my students built a heat pump clothes dryer, which weren't on the market at that time, but, uh, and we didn't end up using that, but still they did the proof of concept uh, in the laboratory, and we built our own uh, heat pump air conditioning dehumidification uh, system. And uh, some things broke in the competition and some things didn't, but we proved out the concepts, and, and after that I just saw I'm not going to be putting in solar thermal, at least in a residential setting, as far as I could see. Heat pump water heater, uh, heat pumps for comfort conditioning, heat pumps for clothes drying. Uh, you put these things in, and there's an amazing synergy among them. And the best way to make it real is that if you have a heat pump water heater and a heat pump clothes dryer for a family of four, your energy savings is enough to give that family 10,000 to 12,000 miles of EV driving per year. And, and so, uh, you know, these simple appliances that we take for granted, 
there's a lot of efficiency we can gain that then we shift over for doing good things, which is getting off fossil fuels. Here, here, yeah, it's interesting. People, first of all, I just, I just love the that the thermodynamics and the physics and the energy flows led you to heat pump water heaters and none, none existed. So you built one. I just yeah. want to pause and say, wow. And you, and you and built just, a heating and cooling heat pump as well for that solar D. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We did a radiant ceiling, uh, basically, uh, because of our research contacts with a lot of industry folks, we got, uh, a bunch of refrigerator, uh, static condensers. Those, the back ones that are, you know, the wire, uh, wire fin. And so we just covered the entire ceiling of the house with those. They're all piped together. And that was a <laughs> quite an effort to, uh, to pipe all those together and not have any refrigerant leaks. And that worked like a champ. And our house won the comfort conditioning, which Washington in the fall is a humid, uh, a humid environment. So it's hard to motor around in psychrometric space and keep people comfortable. Yeah, well said. Wow, that's cool. Okay, so I'm going to pivot now, but I just want to like to get into the pivot, right? So you were data-driven, science-based, and you said, look, these heat pumps make sense running off of PV, right. and that got you away from solar thermal. I know many others in the industry are slowly, begrudgingly um, yeah. coming to that realization. Well, I, I love solar thermal, so I'm just surprised that I made that conversion. Yeah. And, uh, but... Uh, but for a house, simplicity, you know, plug in two more uh, uh, photovoltaic panels and put in a heat pump water heater rather than putting in all the paraphernalia that goes with uh, a solar thermal water heater. It, it will last longer. You know, solar thermal panels are trying to, when you're in the summer and they're oversupplying and they're trying not to stagnate and and croak themselves, right? You know, heat pump water heaters just purring away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, also data driven. You just did what was a, I don't know, such a relief for me, like a moment of awakening. Listening to you talk about COVID in a data driven way, and in fact, you have a forward to a recent. I don't know if it's called a blog post or a white paper, how we refer to it, but. I'm going to read you just one sentence from it here where we're talking, you're talking about the last seven weeks of social isolation, unemployment, fear, and general restrictions leading to distancing fatigue. And this is when we are having, and we're still dealing with uh, racial inequity, active protests are occurring throughout the U.S. And then this is the important part, messages providing for a quantified rationale for continued social distancing are not being coherently communicated. Results from expert simulation models are referred to in vague manners that convey a complexity too difficult for the general public to understand, resulting in a mistrust of government messages and policies. I just think that's so important. Actually, the next sentence, we're at the very beginning of the spread of COVID. And for me, you know, there's another layer when, when these analyses are presented in vague, kind of incoherent manners, which is... I am looking for resources upon which to guide my actions, to guide my yeah, exactly. family, to keep it safe. And if I have a vague sense of things, I, that, that creates anxiety, background anxiety. What I wanted to do was try to get into what, what you did a fantastic job of on your webinar, and we will definitely link to that in the show notes. But I wanted to try to open up that, that a little bit and frankly, get, open up your point about opening up homes and the impact there. And I think to get there, we need to define a few terms 
Um, mm -hmm. And let's see if we can make this work, Ty. So we have good old R naught. Could you try right. to give? Uh, I mean, and uh, by the way, audience, I am a little bit uh, off the cuffing here. This is all new news to him. So R naught. Yeah. So R naught, uh, what's called the basic reproduction number, but it's not a, a fixed number. It's a number that basically says the ratio of people are going to get sick if you're infectious. Uh, R naught is that ratio. So if if I were infectious and I made two people sick, that would be an R naught of zero of of two, and R naught needs to be less than one. That is, I need to not replicate more than just myself and getting someone sick for the disease to decay. But one of the difficulties with R naught is that nobody knows what it is right now. You have to go through a lot of data to then come back and figure it out. So and, instead, you're um, using an infection parameter, the IP. Is that right? Yeah, and so I've defined an infection parameter that it's related to R naught, but it uh, it pops out of the data very simple manner, and and it's also a ratio. It's a ratio of over the two week period that you're sick or infectious, that you're capable of spreading the virus. How many people will be uh, infected? And, uh, and it has kind of an interesting mathematical solution when you're at the border between growing infections and decaying infections. And the number happens to be 2.72, which to people in mathematics or science backgrounds, that's the, uh, the number E, yeah, kind of like pi. Too. So, uh, and that, that's kind of an artifact of how we defined it, but... When the infection parameter is greater than 2.72, so over the two-week period of time, I might be infectious if I made more than 2.72 people infected. And it doesn't mean me directly, which is another nice way to describe this infection parameter. It could be me making one person, and then they went to a party, and they made three people, which then over that two-week period... And so, or, or it could be... You know, 20 of us don't make anybody infected, but then one person makes 50 people infected. And so a very small part of the populace could be a super spreader and, and on average making this infection parameter 2.72. Uh, but that uh, parameter then in this modeling gives a nice way to know if we're growing infections each day or reducing and the U.S. unfortunately has been bouncing around on either side of this 2.72. And what I think is happening, you know, as you had read off that statement, is that without a lack of a coherent uh, program and guidance, uh, a coordinated way to manage this thing, what we're doing uh, as Texas and Florida and earlier us in Illinois and now again in Illinois, but we keep going above 2.72, we start seeing this acceleration, we see horrendous news reports, and then we all kind of... Hunker down. Get, yeah. Yeah, we rebound. We socially distance some more. We start, a larger fraction starts wearing face masks. And these are the other two things that then the infection parameter is defined by is uh, a social distance index and a transmission efficiency. And the social distance index is a totally independent. Uh, it knows nothing about COVID, but it's a, 
In my case, it's something I get from the University of Maryland Transportation Institute that is anonymous cell phone and GPS vehicular GPS data. And they put various waiting functions on it, but it has in it how many times a day somebody's left their home, how many miles they've gone, how many different places they've driven. And that comes up and it's an index that's from zero to 100. Zero, everybody's perfectly interacting and 100 were perfectly isolated. Got it. You know, you're reminding me just very briefly to interject, there was a video that went around maybe uh, a month ago or more about people leaving Florida during spring break. Yeah. First they were like walking or driving away from the beach and then they were going to the airport and then they were going to the... So that's that's that anonymous data you're referring to, that anonymous exactly. GPS data? Yeah, and, and the insidious thing about this though is that this has an incubation period of a week and then an infectious period of two weeks. So it, it, it's a path-dependent type function that uh, what happened uh, one, two, to three weeks ago, is that's the cause of what's going on today. And so we're kind of predestined to follow a certain trajectory now for a week to three weeks. And that's hard on people, too, to be telling them to take this action, but then not to see, you know, this day of, you know, receiving a package the next day that, you have to wait to see that we're starting to, you know, steer this, you know, large ship onto this other course. Yeah, and, and I think really we need clear messaging, data-driven, not opinions, and it needs to be consistent. Okay, so back to it. So we, we got to infection parameter and the social distancing index. Um, could you talk a little bit about the social distancing index, to like a typical range? Yeah, so uh, in February, before it really had, COVID had really uh, started to spread, that uh, a typical number for the U.S. was about 20. But weekdays tends to be higher for most places in the country, like, say, 40. And then uh, weekends tend to be about 40. And then weekdays are maybe in the teens or so, but on average about 20. As we went into March and everybody became horrified at what was happening in New York, out west in Washington, uh, and then as regionally uh, different places started to isolate, this index went up to 60 to 70. Wow. Uh, And New York really set the pace. They went as high as about 75 as we went into April. And then we started relaxing and reopening this isolation fatigue and wanting to get the economy going. But the other parameter that the infection parameters dependent on is what I call a transmission efficiency. And the transmission efficiency is mostly independent from the others. And I would look at it, say, for example, if everybody wore a mask, that might knock the transmission efficiency from one down to 0.5. And one, uh, a transmission efficiency of 100% or one, I look at that as that's us hugging, shaking hands, you know, having a beer together or sharing a beer. Uh, and, and under that activity, then everything else scales from that. When you put a mask on, if it catches 50% of the contagion that's coming out of you, that's reduced the contagion concentration by 50%. And that should result in some lower probability that you're going to get sick if an infected person's in the room with you. And the the key thing is that when you wear a mask, you're reducing the contagion you're putting in the air 
which reduces its concentration, and and that reduces the probability of somebody inhaling that that rebreathe fraction of air of making them sick. You know, as more and more studies are showing, even these cloth masks that people are making that on the inhalation side, the viral particles are they're not individual. So as tiny as a virus is, it tends to be on a some other particulate that's filterable. And and that's a very, very important aspect that you can filter this virus out. Uh, ASHRAE just released a very recent study by uh, some folks at 3M who you know make filters, but uh, where they seeded uh, a, a, a fan loop with some virus, um, non-lethal virus, and showed that they could filter that out of the airstream. And uh, and there's some other very very important uh, and interesting studies along those same lines that going from a MERV eight, which doesn't have the particle capturing capability of MERV 11, 13, 16, and MERV 16 is essentially equivalent to a HEPA filter, that you can get out 85, 90, 95% of the viral mass with filters in, in that level. And that reduces contagion. Um, and so this transmission efficiency coupled with the social distance index, these two things combine together to tell you how big that infection parameter will be. I get it. Mm-hmm. And whether it's and, going to be and, above 2.7 or below, right? which is so And it important. was as high as uh, like 30 or 40 in the very early stages. Before we had uh, isolated from each other, before we were wearing any masks or anything like that, uh, it was very, very high. Also buried in that, though, was maybe not really understanding the asymptomatics. So... If you think of me being sick but knowing it, and then maybe a couple other people who are infected but not sick, in effect, they're helping me to spread it. So if I'm the only one that they know is sick, but I've got three other people helping me to infect other people, that's also included in that efficiency parameter. Mm -hmm. And then um, ventilation is a very key part, and, and that's what we focus on within our company is what can we do to make the built environment a safer environment and and it's something we've been involved in for many years not just on covid because we've known improving ventilation uh there's substantial health benefits there's substantial cognition productivity benefits in improving that from what are standard uh, practices today Yep, yep, that's where we're going. So I just want to make sure, since we're talking about graphs, and we'll move away from it very soon, but um, yeah, because talking about nope. graphs is a bit perilous. But fundamentally, we have this infection parameter, which is which is a, a measurement of reality. It's a measurement of what's happening. Yeah. It's a 14-day average of infections. That's the basis of it. Yeah. And so you can watch it be influenced by the social distancing index, which is independent of it, but obviously related yeah. to yeah. it. And you can watch it be influenced by the transmission efficiency, which is uh, one is how far SD, social distancing is how far away yeah. we're staying from each other, and transmission efficiency is are we masking, are we being careful, yeah. washing our hands, yeah. what the ventilation level is. So this graph, I think this is a good place to leave it. You guys will show the picture of the graph on our show notes, and we'll also link to the video. 
but now let's move into uh, what can we do about this? And, you know, one great thing, so anyone that's listened to this podcast in the past has probably heard us talk about the five principles, which are start with a good enclosure, minimize the indoor emissions, and then keep it dry and ventilate, and as you were just talking about, and filter. The importance of dry ventilate filter somehow gets eclipsed by heating and cooling in the minds of many people planning their homes or their buildings. And so we really need to understand that thermal comfort is not unimportant. It is very important that we make people comfortable indoors. That's one of our roles as professionals. But the other one is that these people expect us to be professionals and to recognize that thermal comfort is not indoor air quality. It's just thermal comfort. And so keeping it dry, ventilating, and filtering. And... um, Hmm. That is, in fact, one of the reasons we're talking because you have you're associated with a product called the CERV or Serve, mm-hmm. um, and I'm just wondering now because I hadn't heard this before about the Solar D making your own heat pumps. Was it mm-hmm. that experience that was the like the seed cause or the nascent force that led to the Serve? Well, uh, so we started with a blank sheet of paper, and and the Serve is as we call it a smart ventilator that senses air quality, carbon dioxide, and volatile organic compounds. But we just saw, all right, all the technology is available so that we can automatically manage air quality. And then as we looked at that energy aspect of it, what's the best way to exchange energy when it's desirable to do that? What's the best way to do that? And our background spans from doing a lot of prototyping and research on things from refrigerators to vending machines to automotive to multi-tonnage military, 25-ton air conditioner that we designed that was the first one to qualify for the new F-35 fighter jet. And so, uh, and grocery store refrigeration, which are some of the most sophisticated uh, refrigeration systems anywhere on the planet. You mean the ones without a lid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's got to be hard to keep something frozen with no lid. You bet. And if that goes bad, that's uh, who cares the cost of the air of the refrigeration system? It's the cost of you know a bunch of frozen lobster or seafood that you know gets everybody's attention. And not to mention all that refrigerant in the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. And so we have that in our background, uh, and so looking toward a heat pump, that's why we decided to incorporate that so that the heat pump could not just simply take some air and recover some energy from the outgoing stream or exchange energy, but also it could do some comfort conditioning as well. And so in the case of a warm, humid environment, we're cooling and dehumidifying the air that's coming in and and putting that heat over in the air that we're exhausting in a summertime location. And then in the wintertime, we're doing the opposite. We're taking heat out of the air that we're exhausting plus latent heat, we're condensing and freezing water on our uh, exhaust coils. And then that turns into sensible heat that we're bringing into the house. And then when we, uh, when it's not beneficial to exchange energy, we don't. And places like Denver, with one of the loveliest climates in the country, there's seven, eight months out of the year where the last thing you want to do is take that nice, cool mountain air right. and make it look like you know your house air by the time it gets inside. And so having a little bit of smarts, and then with the miracle of today's technology where our units at least are all online, if somebody wants them to be, and that we have over-the-air upgrading. So we've got a a variety of features and options that stacked up that will be marched out like 
the serve uh, serve UV, the ultraviolet air purification or server, which is a link that gives us direct control of mini splits and, and other central uh, systems. But we can then give everybody those features that are existing customers. Okay, so I'm actually going to reel us back a tiny bit because I, I do want to yeah. get into, in fact, you said a little bit smart. I mean, controls is where all the magic lies and it's also where yeah. the devil lurks. Um, yeah. So I want to come back to that. I think that's a good place to kind of wrap up things or maybe glimpse of the future is the best place to wrap up, but we'll come back to that. But mm -hmm. let's go through some basic guidelines first uh, about indoor mm -hmm. air quality and kind of put things in order, right? So um, yeah. keeping things dry is very important for the indoor microbiome, for the fungal components, bacterial, viral components, all of them are responding to it. But then you have you know, like fresh air. So I guess that's sort of the, one of the main things is to bring in plenty of fresh air. Could you talk a little bit about what you think of or what you've studied about the, with regard to COVID yeah. and the likelihood of being infected in an indoor space? Yeah. Um, can you set that so, up for uh, us? Yeah, just pre-COVID, uh, but what's relevant to COVID and what we've been preaching, you know, since we've been doing this for you know, over a decade, yeah. is that we need to double our fresh air from the standard rule of thumb of, say, a nominal 20 CFM per person up to 40, 50 CFM per person. When people are there, if you're not home, you don't need that. And so that's where the smarts come in. But... Two reasons, two main reasons for that. To me, a very foundational work by Professor Milton at University of Maryland, who you'll see on CBS News as an expert on COVID now, but he's worked in this area for decades. He showed with over 3,000 workers in New England scattered among several buildings that the buildings that had 40 to 50 CFM per person had 40% fewer sick days than buildings that had 20 CFM per person, ASHRAE 62.1 like ventilation. And, and you look at the cost of a sick day, 40% reduction in sick days is basically one sick day. Uh, on average, the employees had two to three sick days. So the cost of that one sick day, missing work, medical expenses, uh, things of that nature, maybe $500. The cost of doubling ventilation without energy, any energy efficiency actions was about $50 per employee per year. So it's a no-brainer. Right. You know, 10 to 1 payback. The difficulty is that the facilities manager, that, you know, they're being told, get the utility budget down, and the human resources person who's having to staff and make up for that. Right. They've got two different budgets, and they need somebody up here to say, hey, we've got to get you two together because what you're doing over here, yeah, it's making the utility budget look great, but we're paying for it over here. The second aspect, a more recent study from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab along with uh, Harvard School of Public Health, T.H. Uh, Chan School of Public Health, and a number of other colleagues, uh, SUNY New York, uh, State University of New York, and, and some other folks. But they did a cognition-based study looking at multiple areas of how your brain functions, decision-making, creativity, focus, organization of information. And they found that at these levels that we had assumed that CO2 was fairly benign, and then human-associated VOC production, that actually your 
cognition productivity was impaired by about 10%. And, uh, and, and as the authors described it, maybe like drinking a light beer. But that 10%, somebody earning, say, in the range of $50,000 a year, that's five grand if you're that much less productive or making poor decisions or not getting things done. Uh, so a follow-up paper uh, uh, by... Uh, by the folks at Harvard and their colleagues, showed that, again, doubling from 20 CFM up to 40 to 50, and then they worked with Carrier on this where they did um, Energy Plus simulations around the country without any energy efficiency devices added, but just simply bringing up that ventilation per employee, that the most that would cost in a harsh climate your climate, because of the humidity, yeah. or Minneapolis was, again, about $50 a person. But the cost savings based on the cognition improvement was about $6,500 per employee per year. So, again, a, a no-brainer and by a factor of 100. But basically saying even if they're off by a factor of 10, it's still a no-brainer. Get the human resources people and the utility people or the ESCO together to figure this out because, you know, you don't want to just do a life cycle cost on energy. And, uh, and this is what, uh, and in the home environment where we focus, it's just as important. There you go. That's because, what I was about to bring up. You can't quantify yeah, so, it quite you know, as, as a parent, you know, you, you want your kids to be functioning quite well when they're studying. Uh, and if you're not functioning well at home, it, it impairs your sleep and it also slows you down or you're not making as good of decisions at home, which is going to then spill over the next day at work. And, uh, and so while it's hard to say, you know, I've improved my kids thinking this much, so that has you know $5,000 a year worth of value, you know, maybe it makes them more of a pain in the rear that they're you know, now out thinking you even more than they usually do. <laughs> you know, it's definitely got a value, and it's going to pay society to have everybody you know, improve their cognition and thinking and sleeping better yeah. and, um, and getting sick less often. Yeah, just to, just to sharpen that point on sleep, I mean, sleep is your immune system, your productivity, Every, yeah. your happiness, your ability to... Listen to your partner, you know, better sleep yeah. prevents cancer and helps reduce stress and reduce inflammation. It's just, it goes on yeah. and on, helps you lose weight, fights depression. Yeah. On our website, we do have four, these four publications, the Donald Milton one on the, the study in New England on the employees, and then uh, two studies by the Harvard group on the CO2 and cognition, and then uh, a fourth study from the Danish Technical University, which has been a, a mainstay in air quality and productivity, but where they looked at uh, uh, how typical bedroom levels of CO2 impair sleep, which then has a, a quantifiable measured drop in productivity the next day versus keeping uh, a typical bedroom in a conventional home often will go up to maybe 2,000 or so yeah. ppm of carbon dioxide. And they showed if you kept it at 1,000, people not only said they slept better, but they were monitoring um, uh, like a wristwatch-type monitor of activity and motion to see sleep quality. And then they gave them uh, quantifiable tests uh, the next day, various tasks where they had to uh, fill out to show that, you know, this one group definitely was impacted and impaired by poor sleep quality. And yet, so I, I don't want to get too meta on us, but, I mean, not too quickly, but um, it's fascinating how here we are as a race of beings. We, we, 
we obviously use science all the time. I mean, look at us. We're on a Zoom call in multiple cities. You know, I got my yeah. iPhone here doing an audio of this. So we believe science. We're data-driven. We're fact-based. But when it comes to our homes, if someone says, you know, more ventilation will reduce the CO2 level and help you sleep more deeply, people still go, I'm not sure. We haven't done that before. That's new. I'm not sure that's the right thing. And really what, what it is is it's, it's people like you and I get helping the professionals that direct, directly relate to the homeowners and building owners, developers, to yeah. say, wait, yeah. wait, wait, I know you've been doing this for a long time, but we really need to back up and rethink, rethink some basic assumptions. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. I, just one more quick point, and then I, want, I know where I want to take you. So you were actually being kind when you said 20 CFM per person as this typical ASHRAE mm -hmm. number. It's lower. It's 10 to 15, yeah. I yes. would say, uh, yeah. CFM yeah. per yeah. person. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, it is. The residential, uh, seven and a half per person plus an allowance for uh, whatever your building might be emitting. We know we need to ventilate more, and we're using CO2 either as a signal to know when we need to ventilate more or a proxy for the signal, the actual signal. Talk to me about, first of all, what levels of CO2, you, you, you've already talked about that a little bit. Do you think it's a proxy or is it actually CO2 that's the issue? Well, it, CO2 has that double edge of just CO2 on its own with the cognition, uh, but then as far as transmission of flu and colds right. along with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, mm -hmm. that it is a surrogate or a tracer gas telling you the amount of contagion. Yeah. And this assumes an all-electric home, one with gas cooking, the gas from cooking, uh, basically one gas burner is like five or six people respirating in your home. Uh, and so uh, that's another, but hopefully on its way out, as much as I know so many cooks swear by gas cooking. You know, gas cooking is a relatively recent phenomenon. You know, and induction, like a lot that. of cooks are switching to induction. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I really want to put a fine point on that, that one gas burner, four people respirating in your home, and not just that, but the CO2 level is actually a, a, a good reference level to help you understand the health of your air. Are you breathing healthy, well-ventilated yes. air or not? Um, now, it doesn't and, really tell you if and, the air is filtered or not, but we can get into that. Yeah, and so uh, in an all-electric home, the CO2 elevation in the home uh, above outdoor atmosphere came from someone's lungs. And so CO2 is basically telling you what fraction of the air you're breathing had already been breathed by someone else and if they're infectious, what amount of contagion you've inhaled? Mm. And That's pretty dark. So the <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of creeps people out. I, uh, uh, you know, so as I tell people this, uh, you know, you can see them thinking about, oh, I guess I am breathing air that other people have been breathing. Or other mammals of any sort, but oh, yeah, hopefully yeah, just people. In there. <laughs> Not yeah, just dogs. the mice, cats, and dogs. <laughs> so uh, it all adds up, and, and there's a fraction of contagion they do a probability modeling where if you get an infectious dose, and they call an infectious dose a quanta, but one infectious dose basically means you're about 63% uh, chance of you getting sick. Two infectious doses, so it's got that exponential type nature to it. Two infectious doses, about 90%. Three, you're going to get it. Mm -hmm. uh, three quanta, you're going to be sick. So uh, the graph that you're referring to, 
where under standard building ventilation, uh, ASHRAE 62.2 for homes, passive house, about 0.3 ACH, this is adequate ventilation. But what this means is if you're in that home or in a room with, if there's three of you who aren't infected and one infectious person, there's 90 95% chance you're going to be sick after eight hours of being in that room. If you double that ventilation, that fresh air, you knock it down to about 60 to 70%. If you also have the doubling is going air, to about 40. To about 40. And then, uh, and then, and, and that means about 800 parts per million of carbon dioxide from about 1,000 to 1,200. If you then have a recirculation stream that with at least a MERV 11, but MERV 13, MERV 16, so you can remove a large amount of the viral matter through the filters. You knock it down to maybe 50% or so chance that you're going to get sick in that environment. And if you add ultraviolet purification, and in the case of, say, about 200, 250 CFM of airflow, this would be about a 16 to 20 uh, watt UV ball, a pennies per day to operate, pennies per day to protect each person in that environment. And that can get you down as low as, say, 30, 40% probability you're going to get sick from today's standard ventilation, what's called adequate ventilation, that puts you in about a 95% range. You can't eliminate it totally. Even with face masks, if somebody comes by and sneezes on you, you know, you can't totally uh, remove the probability. You know, it's like predicting the weather. In general, they can roughly predict where this hurricane's going, but they can't say, you know, that you're absolutely safe. And so, uh, so it's got that built into it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to recap it, so the basic guidelines, and, and this is not just for COVID, you guys listening, um, this is for indoor health. So the basic guidelines are to ventilate robustly and effectively. We didn't talk about distribution of the ventilation air, but that's which is critical. That's implicit, but we, we, yeah. we actually should touch on that when we get into the, the the whole system, which is coming up next. So robust ventilation, robust, effective. Let's just say ventilation from, with fresh air, filtered, and then I want to say MERV thirteen minimum recirculation filtration. Yeah. You said MERV 11, but we won't bog down. Yeah, no, I mean, we, uh, MERV 13 is a standard in, in our system. The basis for the MERV 11 comes from work by Brent Stevens at Illinois Institute of Technology, who's just does wonderful work. But, mm -hmm. but he had kind of a respiration cough machine that had this mucus-type material, simulation of mucus out of, you know, our respiration. And he seeded it with, with a virus, and then he also had another set of experiments where he seeded it with a bacteria. But in a residential-type environment, like a 1,000-square-foot residence with a central uh, air handling unit, and he showed with a MERV-11 he could pull out in a, uh, about 85% of the viral mass compared to a MERV-8 or no filter. MERV-8 and no filter were essentially the same. Yeah, so somewhere between there is... And so it, it's uh, another demonstration that you can absolutely pull viral mass out of the air. And another interesting feature of his study, and you're hearing more of these things with like a recent New York Times op-ed by Professor Marr out of Virginia Tech, that you know this airborne aerosol, it's moving virus much further away than six feet. Yes. And Professor Stevens' work showed, in fact, that actually with viral-laden droplets, there was hardly any mass 
deposited within six feet in this residential environment, this indoor environment. Most of it was 10 to 20 feet where it started to drop out. The interesting thing was with a bacteria, with bacterial-laden droplets, those did fall within six feet. That's where the most bacterial mass, and that's because a bacteria is actually similar size to the droplets that are coming out of our respiration and sneezing and coughing. And so they were actually affecting the droplet particulate size, and they were big enough to drop out. But virus had a different effect, and that sent it much, much further in the room. And I don't see anybody talking about this, but this study by Stevens, I think, is one of the most important. Uh, you know, this was done uh, a few years ago, pre-COVID, but I think it's one of the most fundamental findings that I just don't see people discussing right now. Yeah, I agree. So I am not an indoor quality scientist. I actually would like to be in some ways, but I'm in an adjacent field. It's kind of like research to practice. I'm in the to practice oh, yeah, side. Coupled, yeah. And yet, even early on, when people were saying this magic six feet number, these large droplets, I knew enough to go, that is a, a rather naive, unsophisticated relationship with reality here. And, you know, speak, just, just I want to just kind of go meta again, I guess. One of the things that we're involved in, I mean, you and I and our society and people like Brent are on the front lines of it, is we are in the midst of an indoor air quality uh, understanding, a revolution in, in the understanding of indoor air quality, right? These, like this yeah. desire to have personalized health care and unlock the human genome. Well, we unlocked the bacterial genome in the 90s, right? And now we have next-gen genetic sequencing. We have these proton transfer reaction time of flight mass spectrometers, you know, that can generate, you can, we can measure what's in the air and figure out if it was biological, what was it doing, right? We have metabolomics, epigenomics, proteomics, right? The little protein knobs yeah. on the COVID. What I'm getting at is, oh, and then we have big data to put it all together and help us figure out what's going on. We literally are awash in data we're just yeah. starting to pull the, the tips of the icebergs out. In some ways, you can kind of like, you can understand where the WHO and the CDC are having trouble making a coherent message. <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh, I, I agree. Uh, and what you just described is what uh, is a concept we call pre-ventilation. Pre-ventilation, I've never heard that. You could either think of it as pre-ventilation or prevent. But the the idea is that, you know, okay, we make a ventilator, we blow some air in. Our real goal and overall overriding objective is how do we make it a healthy environment for people? And, uh, and how do we make just people feel better in general? So we're doing our part on the ventilation, but pre-ventilation is an umbrella over this day and age of big data and artificial intelligence. Some of the useful ways I see that getting used, and, and we're exploring uh, AI because uh, we have just such a large amount of data. So I tell people I, we're running the world's largest indoor air quality experiment I know that's ever been run in homes. How does uh, the air quality, the time somebody spent looking at a computer screen, the food they've eaten, whether they've exercised, the people they've interacted with, the pollen count, uh, you know, whether a high pressure is coming through or not, or just all these disconnected things that that's the power of AI is that it can correlate not necessarily tell us the cause, at least at this point, but it can correlate 
this disparate information. And I might not know the reason, but if it can tell me, if you keep doing things in this manner, three days from now, you're going to have a migraine (laughs) or you're going to have a sinus attack or you're going to have a bout of depression. We'd recommend, you know, that you go in this direction uh, don't see that person for a few days. They're annoying you. But in some unobtrusive manner, help you maybe mitigate a potential attack or, or maybe avoid it altogether. And so that's really where I see us going and our desired goal is how do we just, in a very sim- simple way, help give people guidance and then help structure things in their background so they're just feeling good. I love it. I love it. I want to recap something, but what you just said there was talking about artificial intelligence, applying it to indoor health. I I just think that's so wonderful. And I can hear kind of naysayers going, oh, you know, son, I've been doing this for 30 years. That's way too complicated. But in today's society, what's interesting is we as a society are using very complex AI algorithms yeah. to put eyeballs on ads. Why the heck would oh, yeah, we yeah. not use it to make our helms healthy? <laughs> oh, it's absolutely you know integrated in about everything we're doing now, from vehicles to everything you're doing on the internet. Your friends, which are somewhat, say, symptomatic of of your likes and dislikes, if they start looking at something, that's enough for it to trigger a bunch of ads that are going to get sent your way because you're likely to think like them. And so, uh, yeah, Ed. But, uh, you know, like anything, there's good and bad that this stuff gets used for. I like to think of the good side, but at the same time, we also need to think about playing defense um, too. Well, well, let's summarize this and let's get into the system. Um, we're getting, we've been talking a while here. So to summarize, you're talking, you, you already had a building that had a ventilation system and you increased the ventilation system, which which decreased your likelihood of getting infected. First, I should set the stage. You've got four people in the building, one of them's infected. So mm-hmm. with that scenario, you can decrease from 95% likelihood to 75% likelihood by increasing the fresh air ventilation. Then right. you can go from 75% to roughly 60% likelihood of infection by now doing MERV-13 filtration, recirculated air. And then if you go with air purification, this you know far UVC, UVGI, uh, germicidal irradiation, you can go from mm-hmm. 60 to 50%. So by doing things you know, that are relatively, quote, simple and cost you know, yeah. not too much, you can go from 95% to 50%. That's huge. Yeah, it, it's a, and the additional thing... Even if you're uh, without COVID, you've reduced sick days by 40% or more, and you've improved cognition and cognitive productivity by 10%. And, and, and those things have so much more value. And then not getting COVID or you know, reducing the probability of COVID on top of that, you know, if our buildings have been designed better with that level of ventilation, it would be much easier to battle this disease. Here, here, and that's so important. So now we're gonna get into the system side of things. So the, the systems we're talking about, we could call them the health comfort delivery system, right? So this mm-hmm. does include heating and cooling the space, um, and we'll assume air-based heating and cooling to keep it simple, although thermally active surfaces are, are, are lurking. Um, so mm-hmm. heating and cooling, it includes drying, it includes ventilating, and it includes filtering. 
And we talked about controls. That's where the angels sing and the, the devils are. So the system that you have, this um, is C for conditioning in CERV? Yeah, so the serve CERV, uh, a number of the features tied onto it. Service, then uh, uh, serve, go. and then ICE, intelligently controlled environment. Oh, my goodness. I had no that's idea. The software, uh, that's the software side of things. And, and that's, that's clever. not only the controlling side, but we've got the beginning of what we call analytics. But this is part of this preventilation umbrella. But right now, what's included in that is uh, someone can look at their daily exposure of CO2 and VOCs, but then like uh, kilowatt hours of electric. So you might use uh, a kilowatt, a thousand watts of electricity for an hour, costs you a kilowatt hour, 10, 15 cents. We have pollutant hours in our analytics. So there's CO2 pollutant hours and VOC pollutant hours, and we don't know how to weight the two, so right now we just do a vector addition. But, for example, uh, being in a 1,000 parts per million of CO2 for an hour is one pollutant hour of CO2. And being in a 1,000 equivalent parts per million of VOCs, uh, and equivalent CO2, and what that means is that the VOCs that a person puts out uh, relative to their respiration of carbon dioxide, that would be an equivalent of 1,000 ppm if the CO2 is 1,000 ppm. And if you're in that for an hour, that's a VOC hour of pollutant exposure. Combining those together, that would be like 1.4 oh, hours cool. of total exposure. And we would like people to be have less than 24 pollutant hours of total exposure. Now, a natural gas cooking home will tend to be dominated by CO2, too, but if they're not that great of a cook and they're burning stuff or they like to cook Cajun, the VLCs can overwhelm the CO2, but typically gas-heated and gas-cooking homes will be CO2-dominated. Electric homes, and with people that are conscientious about pollutant production, where they're the source of pollutants as opposed to cleansers and cosmetics and, and chemicals infused in their furnishings. In that case, VOCs will tend to dominate, but either one can. So it's important to measure both. But we feel over time, as you accumulate pollutant hours of exposure, that this is going to be important in telling us our health 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. Yeah. And as more reliable particulate sensors are available. So the ones that you get in desktop things, you know, the reality is to really do a good job sizing particulates accurately for a long time, that's a $10,000 instrument. Yeah. Or maybe it's getting down to a thousand bucks, but it's not something you can put in, in every ventilator, even though some people do. And we're continuously testing these. And when they do get to that level, we'll incorporate that. But all right, I want to. I gotta. But, I gotta mm -hmm. reel you yeah. back because I actually. Yeah. Know, I just asked you if C was for serve, and we got into the intelligent controlled environment. That's fascinating. But I, I just want to take us back to the system level. We can come back here. Yeah. But at, at the system level, essentially, what you have is you have the CRV that has a heat pump, heat exchanger in it, with, and it is also the central system that controls auxiliary heating and cooling systems, auxiliary dehumidification systems. I guess. 
auxiliary filtration, but they're probably in the heating and cooling and in the DU too. Yeah, normally, yeah, our unit's doing all the filtration. And, and the ventilation mm -hmm. as well, or do you control auxiliary ventilation as well? Uh, uh, and doing all the ventilation, although, say, in a more like a commercial building or something, maybe a yoga studio or something, where most of our, say, a large fraction of the time, it might just be office staff, and then a class comes in, and you need to add a larger commercial level um, uh, ERV or HRV. We, you know, could be the brains to be managing things when you don't have such a large group in, but then as a larger group comes in, we can then ramp that up to 1,000 CFM, 2,000, 3,000, or whatever might be needed. Mm -hmm. um, Fascinating. But we mix and match and play either independently or integrated and oftentimes with us controlling, since our uh, controller is uh, a very powerful controller with a lot of ability to connect in different, different yeah, ways. Yeah, I think that's really what drew me to you. Um, but you also just opened up some other cans that I can't resist. One is you talked about exposures. And we talked about the human genome. Well, now we're talking about the human exposome. So the, mm -hmm. a, a lifetime of exposures leading to this moment. And that'll, that'll have a lot to do uh, with how I experience yeah, sure. health or dishealth or dis-ease. Um, I definitely want to come back to sensors, but first let's stay on this, this larger level of controls. So you are filtering, if you have a heating and cooling system, there's a filter there, it's hopefully MERV 13, yeah. so you are controlling that filtration. You're controlling the dehumidification, mm -hmm. but you're doing some dehumidification uh, internally, mm -hmm. and then you own essentially, except for the yoga studio or some other unique applications, your ERV, is controlling the filtration and ventilation for health. Um, so my question to you, and I, I need you to think not like the owner of a product manufacturing company, but like if someone didn't use the serve, I'll just say it actually this way. So if someone didn't use it, what would they use? But what the, the way we do is we currently design uh, systems that use the air itself as this like signaling tool, right? The air will signal its humidity to my humidity sensor and turn on my dehumidifier. The air will signal its CO2 yeah. or PM and turn on the ERV, right? The, you instead, I guess you are, you're measuring, what are you measuring? Here, let's start with so, that. What are you measuring? Yeah, I, we put air quality above, we tell people think beyond energy. And, you know, and our whole background is energy. I mean, all the industries we've worked for and done research with, it typically is energy efficiency or collecting or story. Mm -hmm. But energy is a constraint. Professor Bill Bonfleth, the former ASHRAE president, when he gave a seminar at the University of Illinois, he said, Buildings are not for saving energy. Buildings are for keeping people healthy. Awesome. Yeah. And, and that's the way we think. So the objective is keeping us healthy, and energy is a constraint. Right. So as you start putting all those pieces together. And so our prime directive is good air quality and then doing that in an energy-efficient manner. We're not going to shut down the amount of fresh air coming into a home in northern Vermont just because it's minus 20 out or minus 25. Sorry, you can't breathe you today. Need, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. But that's what a lot of systems do. They'll just shut down the fresh air, and it's the absolute worst time to do that. Mm -hmm. That's when the flu virus is, is healthiest and most viable and easy to spread around. And the same in Florida, when it's hot and humid, you still need all that air brought in to keep you healthy inside. As we looked at, okay, how do we do that? And, and one of the advantages of this heat pump technology is it has no lower limit or no upper limit. 
Now, it gets less efficient, like all heat pumps do, the colder it gets outside, but it's bulletproof, so it doesn't need any preheaters, other ventilators that have to have some kind of frost prevention because their heat exchangers can't stand to be clogged. It'll break down their membrane surfaces, or they just can't get the frost out of their airflow passages that uh, they put in like seven, 800 watt electric heater. And this doesn't show up in any of the energy testing and any, any of the energy performance standards as people are looking for that one efficiency number. And so uh, we looked at it as what technology is going to let us bring in the air that you need, whether it's northern Vermont or the, you know, hot desert in the southwest. And, and that's how we came up with it. And the motivation is really this house I'm sitting in. I wanted, when we built this in 2010, I wanted fresh air automatically brought in as we need it. And that was really the motivation. So uh, this house has had a serve in it. It's number one serve put in in 2010, and it's just purring away. And, and, uh, and then we formally came on the market in 2013 after doing more field tests and studies. But that's the motivation for it, not just simply to let's join the market with something. Right. I love it. So are you implying that you have a unique membrane? Or you're using an off-the-shelf core, right? Somebody's core. So, well, we, we buy heat exchangers, but they're our own design. So the heat pump is totally our own design. I mean, we braze it together, and the controls are fully our design. They're not third-party vendors. Uh, you know, it's not a JCI or a Corel or something like that. We, and there's uh, no enthalpy core? No. no. There's no. no direct air-to-air exchange like no. in terms of enthalpy? No. It's purely there, there are some heat pump-based ones that then also incorporate that. But as we went through the analysis of it, we, uh, uh, for various reasons, but we didn't see uh, significant energy improvement. But the other thing we don't <laughs> like about uh, polymer cores that are very popular in, in um, energy recovery of ventilators is that, I mean, some are made out of polystyrene, some are made out of polypropylene. To me, it's like blowing your air through a box full of styrofoam peanuts. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're absorbing uh, chemicals. I mean, anything, you know, you have a bag of potato chips and they're in the plastic bag too long, they start tasting like the plastic bag instead of potato chips. And, and your air is doing that within these plastic heat exchangers as well. We wanted to avoid that. And type of heat exchangers we've used in air conditioning for, you know, well over a century now that we just feel this is a better surface to be bringing your air through. Fascinating. Okay, so I did not know that this episode was going to um, try to poke the entire ERV industry in the eye, but that's where we've gone. <laughs> you can edit so, that out. So the, no, it's okay. So the, the HRV you're okay with, though, you didn't, didn't use that core either. I mean, you're okay no. with, though, in the sense that it's not made of plastic and... It's just strictly thermal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's uh, for sure there's metal, um, you know, aluminum plate type. Probably see that more now in commercial systems. And our heat exchangers that we use, though, are advanced technology. They're what you call microchannel uh, heat exchangers. They're all aluminum. And on the recycling side, because we also think of disposal, 95% or so of our materials are just pop them apart and take them to the metals recycling. Fascinating. Uh, I, you know, so I'm just going to be candid with the people, so we're not going to edit this out. Miguel, you can keep this in. But somehow all these years, I thought that you had an ERV plus heat exchangers. No. But it's just no, it's just heat purely heat-based. Pump. Yep. So the, all the thermal flows are, are mediated yep. with these microchannel heat exchangers. Yep. Fascinating. Yep. Yeah. So looking at the time, you know, and actually it's probably not appropriate for me to just start 
asking you to give me more of a commercial for your product. But essentially, you, you have this intelligently controlled environment software. That's where your AI might be coming in. Is that right? In the future, yeah, with the analytics then to help bring in other things in addition to what we're monitoring to make better sense of it for helping you feel better. You know, the bare bones serve, and uh, the for sure the majority of the units go out. It's about size of a clothes dryer, and you just simply set it on the floor, hook the ducts up, plug it in a 120, and flip the switch on. will automatically link into your Internet. Uh, and then as you get in more complex homes, that zone dampering as well as wireless remote sensors and uh, occupancy sensors and wireless switches, battery-free wireless switches, that these can all communicate with the serve to, uh, to tell it what to do or, or to send it information. So I think that's actually a good wrap up. Uh, and we have a project together that maybe we can, on a future episode, just discuss the specifics and how we arrived at the design. You know, yeah. Hopefully it'll move forward. So let's let's wrap up the show then. You know, actually in the, in the very beginning we had like a pre-discussion. I mentioned that we just interviewed Pamela Cabrera with Transsolar about these membrane dehumidifiers, and you mentioned something that was similar. Yeah, electroosmotic. Electroosmotic. Could you talk about that and how it might be used in homes? Well, it, so this is a future technology, but so this was one of my last PhD students in the early 2000s. But we worked on what we called an electroosmotic desiccant. And, and basically the desiccant pulled vapor out of the air, collapsed it into, a, in effect, a liquid state. And, and then with an appropriate material with a voltage potential off it that we could drive that water through, say, a, a wall or that, that layered material, and then eject that vapor, but in, in effect pumping a high vapor pressure, a more humid environment uh, space, eject that water into, uh, into an even higher humidity environment. So pumping it against the vapor pressure gradient. Yeah, uphill. And... And, and it works, but the difficulty is getting a durable material. So what we were able to make is lab samples and then show that the phenomena existed and then develop the theory in the computational simulations to, to see that you know, our understanding and what we were measuring went together. But then to get that into, a, you know, as in any idea, getting that into a, a real product, there's a lot of effort there. But, you know, industries are looking at that as well as I know other universities are looking at that. Yeah, I'll send you Pamela's uh, episode. You can listen to that. And one of the things, just yeah. interject, what I appreciate so much is like, by the end of this interview, I feel like you and I are closer. Like we've done some sort of mind meld. And yeah, the same thing yeah. when I spoke to It would be much better to get to visit you physically. And I know that Austin's got, you know, some great beer and great music. Absolutely. I'm a Gary Clark Jr. fan, so. Oh, you are. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So. so this is, um, this is Professor Emeritus Ty Newell, Ph.D. P.E., getting a pop quiz hot shot moment. So the floor is yours, Ty. Like, so you come from a background of looking for human thriving on a thriving planet. These could yeah, be seen I, as fairly dark it, times. What, what's your view? Well, I'm an optimist and I'm pinching myself every day now that 
I live in a solar-powered house, a zero-plus energy house. Our business is 100% solar-powered, driving two electric cars. Our first-gen uh, Ford Focus that we bought in 2012, that to me was the last piece of the puzzle. And when I was able to buy a Ford after whining to a number of my former students about when are you going to... I'm a Detroit guy. That's why I wanted a Ford. Okay. I have a Chevy Bolt. <laughs> and that's a wonderful car, too. Uh, but we flew to New York because you can only buy them in New York and California. We drove it back, plugged it in every 60 miles, went to the factory by Detroit where it was made. And my students, had, uh, former students, had set up a, a tour of the plant. And actually, the reason for the route we took was that in 1901, the first curved dash Oldsmobile drove from Detroit to New York, the first time a car had been driven a long distance like that. And so we're recreating that drive back to Detroit from New York. Kind of a side note was that uh, a fellow named Roy Chapin, who was a young engineer with Oldsmobile in the 1900s, he's the one who drove to New York from Detroit. Roy Chapin started Hudson. My dad, my grandfather, uncles and aunts are all in the car industry, but a lot of them work for Hudson. Interesting. So I knew this Roy Chapin story. It turns out that one of Bill Ford, uh, one of Bill Ford's senior advisors, is a grandson of Roy Chapin, and another grandson named Bill Chapin, who's president of the American Automotive Hall of Fame. He met us at the plant where our car was made, and because I'm like the only other person in the world that knows the story of his grandfather driving from Detroit to New York. But it made world headlines. Ours didn't make such a big splash, but our point was to prove these electric vehicles are not just for driving around the city, which people thought it. But when my wife and I finally drove in our garage about 10 days later from leaving New York, I just felt this wash of relief that everything is here, all the major pieces, transportation, living, working. We can all do this on renewable energy. It's going to produce way more jobs than what a fossil-based Absolutely. society does. So, I, I, you know, where I've just been feeling like we're going 100 miles an hour at this brick wall, you know, for my whole career, yeah. that we've got to live on solar energy. And so now I'm feeling at least relieved. We have a hell of a lot of other problems to solve, but <laughs> the energy one to me is solved. Now we just have to implement and keep doing things like what your firm is doing, getting people on the path of knowing, knowing they, they can, can live on, on uh, solar energy and renewable energy. That was well said. That's, that's fantastic. So that was way too long. Sorry. No, no, that was wonderful. <laughs> I actually was just listening to the Energy Gang uh, talking about, you know, Europe, their economy is needing a huge stimulus, and they are stimulating the future of economies with renewables and with looking forward to how yeah. our future economy is going to be structured and based. And I sure hope the yeah. United States can follow in that. We were talking about coal. It's just so ridiculous. Yeah, there's, there's a number of battles that need to be fought. But to me, the war is over, but you can't lay back. But for every dollar that comes out of the fossil fuel industry, coal, oil, gas... And goes over to, so for example, a heat pump water heater. Your water heater is going to cost more, but you've employed people, and now you're not going to use a fossil fuel because somebody's going to build solar panels. And the dollar exchange for every dollar that you took out of fossil fuel, you get 10 times more jobs for that dollar when it goes into manufacturing. And that's based on Fortune 500 data where fossil fuel companies are some of the most profitable, as everybody knows, 
corporations that ever existed. They're right up there with Wall Street banks, health insurance, and uh, and so they employ about 0.2 to 0.3 people per million dollars worth of revenue. Folks that make things like cars and solar panels and washing machines and things like that, they employ 10 times more people, about two to four people per million dollars of revenue. And so when you switch a dollar from gas over to this battery pack uh, and electric vehicle, you've employed more people over here by a large factor as well as the cost. And so I just feel this shift, we're going to feel everybody getting wealthier. And to me, it's a non-tax way to make the economy healthier. It's going to hurt a lot of people that are enjoying that 0.2 to 0.3 employment for a million dollars of revenue. But the rest of us over on Main Street instead of Wall Street, we're going to be uh, breaking this stratification that's currently going on. And so I'm hopeful and optimistic that this is a great economic direction. And, and Europe often is a leader in these things. So We will follow, as we always do. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Ty. Well, thank you for letting me blather on. Um, some big thoughts there at the end. This is a good one to rewind a few times and listen to some spots. And uh, So thank you, Ty, and, and thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time.